All right, we are taking a look at 1 Kings 10 and 11 tonight. And if I gave this lesson a title, which I don't usually do on Wednesday nights, it would be The Rise and Fall of Solomon. This is all about his reign, the good and the bad. Solomon's story is a very mixed one. There's not really a happy ending, and yet he's still looked on in Scripture and in the New Testament in a positive light. So it's interesting. It's an interesting story. And tonight, I'm going to give you the application points in advance, all right? So here's your application points to look for in this story, in these, three, in these two chapters. Number one, a leader's character matters at least as much as his leadership skill. And that's true in church leadership, that's true in corporate leadership, and that's true in governmental leadership. Uh, this is the story of a man who in every way was successful as a king, and yet he had character flaws that, as I, I think I'm going to show you by the end, undid all the good. Undid all the good he did as king of Israel. Number two, just because people wink at our sin, it doesn't lessen the damage that sin will do over time. So as you know, there are certain things that once were considered sinful and then in certain cultural situations, suddenly we decide, well, that's not a problem anymore. But that doesn't change the truth of whether it's good or evil. That doesn't change the damage that that sin can do. In the same way, you or I might be in a cultural position or a societal position where we can get away with things that somebody else couldn't. But just because you can get away with it, maybe you're the boss of the company, or maybe you're in some other position of authority and no one feels the right to challenge you. The damage is still done, even if you don't pay any immediate earthly penalties. So those are the two, uh, two application points of this story. Now, let's get into it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And you may have already guessed, this is part of the rise, part of the rise and fall of Solomon. Okay, this is, this is, this is a part in his early or midpoint of his reign when you see his glories. Uh, if you read First and Second Chronicles, after you read First and Second Kings, there, there's different details of the same stories. First, First and Second Chronicles goes into way more detail about the glories of Solomon and, and the things that he accomplished and his knowledge and his his wisdom. But here, this story about the Queen of Sheba is presented as a way of showing, look how far little Israel has come. Because you remember when David became king, Solomon's dad, Israel was essentially just a loose confederation of squabbling, uh, 
often lawless tribes. I mean, you read the book of Judges sometimes and, and ask yourself, does that sound like a, a successful nation in the making? And the answer is no, it does not. Most of the time, people of Israel were under the boot of some oppressor or other, usually the, the, the Philistines. The Philistines ran amok over Israel for hundreds of years. David comes along, man after God's own heart, dynamic leader, suddenly everything changes. Israel can't lose a battle. I mean, Israel defeats all their enemies and, and, and possesses more territory than they've ever had before uh, or ever will after, sad to say. Um, they, also, they also unify the nation around Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah. Uh, the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem is the way it was meant to be. No, no more is there this place, where this situation where Israelites just go and, and build an altar wherever they want and sacrifice a bull or a goat. No, everybody comes to Jerusalem. It's done through the priests, according to the Leviticus, just the way God meant it to be. So David has made that, uh, has made that situation the way it is. And then Solomon takes over and with his skills, he takes it to the next level. And so you, you go from a few genera uh, two generations before, a lawless, squabbling band of tribes, and now you've got a nation so great that this very, very impressive queen comes and is blown away. Now, Sheba, you might be interested to note, is, we think, modern-day Yemen. So that part of the world, kind of the Arab Peninsula. Uh, but the way the story is told is to emphasize this is not a lightweight person. This is someone who has a lot of glory and success of her own, and yet she comes to Israel and thinks, now this is a great king. This is a great ruler. This is a great nation. And remember, that was God's plan for Israel all along. That they would be a nation that drew in people from all over the world. They would travel to Israel and say, what, what's your secret? And they would study what Israel was doing. How can, you, how can you be so successful? You never fight any battles, and yet you're secure, and you're this tiny little nation in kind of a dry part of the world, and yet you have abundant crops. How, how, does, it, how does it happen? And they would say, it's the Lord. And you notice that she goes away saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know that she's now a believer in, in God, but she, she believes that Israel's God is powerful. And, and so that's the goal of Israel. If Israel, this is a tantalizing and, and tragic thought. If Israel had kept the covenant, they would still be like this today. Unbroken chain of glory and success and prosperity and peace. Uh, but that didn't even last one generation after Solomon, as we're going to get to. So on a personal level, you know, that's, that's one point. Look at the progress Israel's made under the house of David. But on a personal level, think about it this way. It shows that a man of skill or a woman of skill, person who has skills and works hard, God will use that to glorify himself. We think of God's glory being displayed through preaching the word. And yeah, I believe that's definitely important. But God is glorified when a child of God does a good job, does it well, does it with all their heart and, and gives glory to God. And that's the case with Solomon. Solomon was a skilled leader. He was not a priest. He was a skilled leader. And the world came and saw him and said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, what happens next, we, will, we won't read, but God, uh, it's a summary of Solomon's riches, Solomon's glories, uh, because God had promised. Remember, when God appeared to Solomon as a young man at Gibeon and said, I'll give you whatever you ask for, and Solomon said, well, I want wisdom. I want an understanding and obedient heart. 
And God said, well, that's a great thing to ask for. I'll give it to you. Plus, I'll give you what you didn't ask for, long life and peace and power and wealth. So this is the evidence that that promise was fulfilled, these next verses. It talks about shields of gold. Solomon made these, or commissioned these massive shields made of pure gold. And we find out in a later chapter what these were for whenever the king would go to the temple. He had an honor guard that would escort him there carrying these shields of gold. And you can just imagine in a nation like Israel, people watching that and going, oh my goodness, look how glorious our nation is. Look how prosperous we are. Uh, he had an ivory throne that's described in detail with six steps. And on every step on the either end, there's a, a, a carved figure of a lion. And then on the top on where the actual throne is, two more lions. So again, very impressive stuff. Uh, the, the point is made that silver is con was considered worthless in Israel in the time of Solomon. If you, were, if you were a silver dealer, the market was bad, right? Because the, the way I look at it, you and I, and some of you are old enough that you think, you know, if you would have told me when I was a kid that I would someday live in a house with a TV in every bedroom, with uh, central air and heat and, and tiled floors, and, and just think about the things that you have now that when you were a kid, you would have thought, oh, only rich people have those things. That's the prosperity we now live in as Americans, many of us. For Solomon, Solomon's Israel was like, oh, we used to think it was great if you had a little silver. Well, now silver's worth nothing because that's how much, that's how far we've advanced economically. And the last thing is mentioned is he accumulated chariots and horsemen. Now, immediately, if, you, if you've paid attention, your, your, your neck starts to prickle a little bit because Moses said, you know, a couple of centuries before Israel ever had a king. Someday you'll have a king. Don't let him acquire for himself a lot of horses. So the argument is, okay, is Solomon, is he already starting to disobey God by accumulating all these horsemen and chariots, or is he, does he get a pass because this was just blessed, blessed to him by the Lord? This is just a gift of God and he didn't seek it. We don't know. Now later we'll find out there are things he definitely does wrong. We'll get to that. But let me just do a, a sidebar for a moment. Let's talk about wealth for a moment. Let's, let me do a quick biblical theology of wealth. All right? So Bible tells us very clearly that earthly wealth is not promised to us. Nowhere in Scripture is there a promise that if we are faithful, we will be wealthier than our our pagan neighbor, our unbelieving neighbor. That's nowhere promised in Scripture. I know that's commonly thought. And even in Jesus' own time, they thought, uh, boy, if, if the rich young ruler, he must be a really righteous if God blessed him that way. But that's not scriptural. On the other hand, there are characters in Scripture who, who had some measure of earthly wealth. Abraham was a wealthy man. Solomon, of course. Uh, in the New Testament, Barnabas was well off enough that he could sell land and donate it to the church. Lydia was a businesswoman, a seller of purple. So she was probably affluent because... Purple was the most expensive fabric of that time. So there are characters in Scripture who are well off. There are also characters that aren't. The prophets. None of the pro being a prophet was not a well-paying job. Okay, it was a way to get killed. It was not a way to get rich. Uh, the apostles. Little people don't really think about this, but some of the apostles left a middle-class background to to follow Jesus, to be homeless for at least three years. Peter, James, John, Andrew. Matthew left an affluent position 
to live in poverty. And of course, Jesus himself, as he said, once he started his ministry, he had no place to lay his head. So you see both. You see people in scripture who are, who are dirt poor. You see people who are well off. Um, so that's not an indication of God's favor necessarily, that you have money or that you don't. Uh, the third thing I would say in a theology of wealth is for those who God chooses to bless that way, John, 14, um, John 12, 48 applies. John 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much is required. So the more you have, the more God holds you responsible for what you have, to do good with it, to, to manage it well, and to, to use it to His glory. And then number four, and I want you to pay attention to this, most of the commands in Scripture about wealth assume that we're not going to obey. Most of the commands about wealth present it as if it's not a blessing, but a trap, a curse. And for instance, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't love both God and money. You have to choose. He knew that that would be a tripping point for many of us. So keep all that in mind. You and I can't judge someone else based on their pocketbook, whether they're righteous or not, but we should be very careful with what we've been given. In fact, I would go further than that and say, all of us are rich in something. You may not have more money than uh, somebody else you can name, but all of us are rich in something. What are you rich in? Is it family? Is it physical health? Is it uh, job skills? Is it, uh, is it number of friendships you have? What are you blessed with more than most people? Then what are you doing with that blessing? To whom much is given, much is required. I will say this, at this point in, in 1 Kings 10, it looks like God is using Solomon's wealth to glorify himself. He's using it to draw people in. And I'll just show you, verses 23 and 24 say, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So earthly blessing can be an opportunity for God to use it. I think all of us would volunteer for that job, right? I want to be the exceptionally blessed person that others look at and say, I want that life. Just understand it's also a trap, as we'll see in Solomon's life. All right, so chapter 11. And here's where the fall begins. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Why does he mention the daughter of Pharaoh? Because that was, as far as we know, his first wife says, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. So the problem isn't just that Solomon engages in polygamy. It's that he's marrying with nations that God has specifically forbidden the people to intermarry with. Not because they're racially different, but because they worship false gods. And God knows, God knows that if you intermarry with them, you will begin to worship their gods instead of me. They will turn you away from the God who is your life. All right, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Let me just stop there and just say, <laughs> in all seriousness, I don't think there's any way that he could have any kind of relationship with a thousand women, even if that was his full-time job. And it wasn't. He had a full-time job. Um, 
So my guess is that most of these women in his harem were women he never saw, or if saw, saw them, knew them only in passing, knew their face, didn't really know their name. They were brought in uh, probably for two purposes. Number one, to, to display his glory, and number two, to make a, a li, a li, um, alliances with other nations. You know, if, if Pharaoh's daughter is my wife, Egypt's probably not going to invade and kill me, right? That kind of thing. So, you know, for all the jokes you make about, oh, how could he remember all those anniversaries? And, you know, I'm sure he had a hard time pleasing all those. That was the furthest thing from his mind. And I know it says he clung to them in love. I don't think that literally means he was in love with a thousand women at the same time. All right. I don't think that's physically possible. The point is this, the next sentence, and his wives turned away his heart. So just like the commandment said, if you intermarry with them, they will turn your heart away from me. It happened to Solomon. Of all people who has heard from God audibly twice, who has been given uh, gifts like nobody else has ever had before by God himself, and yet his heart turned away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as with the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil inside of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, one thing to understand, we, we look at this and think, how, how can anybody uh, approve of this kind of uh, multiple marriage? In the ancient world, and not just in Israel, in the ancient world period, it was pretty common for men, if they could, to marry more than one woman, not really for romantic reasons, but because that increased your likelihood of bearing more sons. If you want to know what wealth was really measured in, yeah, it was great to have land, it was great to have horses, it was great to have gold, but if you had sons, that was the goal. So we see in the, in the story of, of uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, right? She couldn't have children. And her husband married Penina, who was a thorn in her side because Penina was very fertile and very annoying. And, and so Hannah's praying to God. For a woman uh, in that culture, usually if your husband married another woman, it wasn't because he found her more attractive. That's, that's modern American thinking. Although it went on sometimes, Jacob was attracted to Rachel. But for the most part, it was very transactional. It was, I want more sons. This is going to make me great. This is going to give me a, a little empire of my own. So with all that said, if you would have asked the average Israelite in that day, what do you think about King Solomon and all his wives? My guess is the average Israelite, especially the average Israelite man, would have said, I think it's fantastic. I mean, look, we've got the greatest king in the world. Look at the size of his harem. He's got a thousand women in there, and they're all beautiful, and they're from all over the world. And because they're from all these countries, we'll never be attacked because we've made alliances with all. I think it's great even though the word of God clearly said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You can't do that with three. You can't do that with a thousand. That's, that's two people. That's one man, one woman. And, and Deuteronomy 17, 17, Moses had warned, 
and the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Yet there's no indication that anybody went up to Solomon and said, you realize you're disobeying God right now, don't you? No, no indication that anybody held him accountable or said, this is a bad idea. And I think it's understandable in this way. When things are going well, no one wants to rock the boat. Now, if, if the whole nation had been spiraling downward economically and militarily, maybe someone would have spoken up. But these were boom times. Who's, who's going to go up to the king and say, you need to change when everything's going great? Unfortunately, that's the case with us too. I want you to notice it says Solomon, uh, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. In other words, he continued worshiping God. I, I'm pretty confident he kept going to the temple and kept celebrating the, the festivals and offering his offerings. It's just that he added in these idolatries. And y'all, that's the way idolatry works. Idolatry, the devil is smart enough to understand. If he comes at you with a frontal assault and says, you've got to stop believing in Jesus and start believing in money or, or approval or pleasure or politics, you're going to say, no, I've got one Savior and one Savior only. That's not the way he's to, to our hearts. What he's going to do instead is say, okay, yeah, worship Jesus, but don't you think you need a little of this too? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little of this? Wouldn't that make you feel a little better? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to have a little God you can have your hands on too? And that's what tripped the Israelites up. Because you can just see how the average Israelite would say, you know, last year's crop wasn't very good and it hasn't rained much this year. So I'm going to keep worshiping Yahweh. But Baal, you know, my Canaanite friends say Baal brings the rain. So I'm going to go down to that temple and, and worship him a little bit too. Solomon was turned aside by his wives because they were from those countries. And I'm going to say something to you that's really going to disturb you. The gods that are mentioned here, most of them, Milcom, Chemosh, Molech, they required child sacrifice. The valley east of Jerusalem, you know what it's called where he built these temples in high places? It's called the Valley of ben Hinnom. When Jesus came along later and was coming up with a word for hell, right? And he was trying to describe what it's like to be separated from God forever. He called it Gehenna. And he was referring to that valley. That valley in Jesus' time was the, the garbage dump where the smoke rose constantly, the fire never went out. Why was that the garbage dump? Because when the Pharisees and, and the, the, the Israelites who were righteous had come back into the land after the exile and they said, we will never worship those false gods again. Let's put trash all over that valley where we used to worship those false gods, Molech and Chemosh and, and Milcom. So we'll defile it completely. Who built those temples and those high places that they were defiling? Solomon did. So, thousand wives and they're all sacrificing children to these false gods. There's nothing in the Bible that says any of Solomon's children were burned in the fires, but I wouldn't be surprised. He wouldn't have known. A thousand women, a thousand wives and concubines. It, it, it breaks your heart. You know, the original name, by the way, for the Valley of Gehenna was Topheth, T-O-P-H-E-T-H. Um, that's a word linguistic experts think that's a, an old word that means drums. Why do you think 
I'm sorry, y'all are going to really be mad at me for telling you this. Why do you think they banged the drums? So you wouldn't hear the babies, right? Being thrown into the fire. All right, I'll move on. But it should break your heart that a man like Solomon, like, that anybody would give in to that, but Solomon participated in it after what he'd been given. Now, what's even more tragic, that became the besetting sin of Israel. That became their sin. They never stopped worshiping God, but they kept adding in these other idolatries and it became their downfall to the end of their nation when Babylon invaded hundreds of years later and Solomon started it. So keep that in mind. We, have, we all have our little vices and we can say it's just a little thing. I'm so righteous in every other way. But that little vice can do more damage than you can imagine. Some of you know who Jim Dennison is. Uh, he said something I've quoted a lot. He said, sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay. Keep that in mind. All right, before we move on, I want to do a quick sidebar, a second one, if you're counting. Uh, since this is the last time we'll talk about Solomon in detail in this study, I just need to address, he wrote three books that we know of that are in Scripture. Let me just cover them real quickly. He wrote Proverbs. He's, he's credited the authorship of Proverbs. And I think that was his life's work. I think for his whole life, he was accumulating, he was acquiring wisdom sayings. He was learning things about life. So, and so Proverbs is Solomon's guide to wise living. He wrote the Song of Songs, which is the book you should never let your teenage boy read, okay? Don't even tell him it's in the Bible because then he'll want to read it. But it's, it's a love poem between a young man and young woman who are getting married. It, it's quite uh, spicy. Um, it, it's, it's really passionate. And so it's either, I think, it's either something Solomon wrote when he was a young man and first fell in love, or it was something he wrote as an old man when he looked back and thought, I should have just stayed with that one. <laughs> I should have been happy with that one woman. And then there's Ecclesiastes, which is very obviously the work of an older man who's saying, learn from my mistakes. I, I, I tried everything the world had to offer in terms of happiness and joy and accomplishment, and all of it was dust in the wind. Uh, it's all vanity of vanities. So uh, learn from my mistakes. Those are the books that are ascribed to Solomon. Now, in verses 9 through 28, we won't read it, but God appears to Solomon for the third time in his life. The first time was at Gibeon to offer him anything he asked for. The second time was after the temple was completed and Solomon had prayed a prayer of dedication and God came to him and said, I will honor your prayer. I will inhabit this temple. I will be your people's God till the end of time. But the third time God comes to Solomon, it's to tell him, you haven't kept your end of the covenant. And therefore, you're going to lose everything. Therefore, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. But for the sake of your father, David, I won't tear it away in your lifetime. It will happen during your son's lifetime. And for the sake of David, I won't tear it all away. He'll get to keep Judah and one other tribe, but 10 tribes will be torn away from him. And it's very noteworthy that it tells us that God appeared to Solomon and said this, but it doesn't say Solomon repented or wept or apologized. And that's important to note. It then goes on to tell us that God raised up three new adversaries for Solomon. So Solomon has lived in peace 
his whole reign. Now suddenly there are these three different men who spark revolts in his kingdom. And I'm going to name them for you. The first two I won't give any details about because we don't know many details. The first one was a guy named Hadad the Edomite. Edom was, of course, the descendants of Esau, and it was to the south of Israel. Uh, and then the second one was Rezan of Syria. That's in the north. So he had a, a revolt going on in the north and in the south. But the one that really hurt was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's best workers. He was, he was in charge of the forced labor in the tribe of Ephraim. So it was his job to go around and round up men to work in Solomon's, uh, in Solomon's projects in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And I just wonder, I mean, we're about to read the story of how Jeroboam turned on Solomon. But if you have that job, it's your job to basically drag young men off of their family farm uh, and say, okay, yeah, sorry, say goodbye to mom and dad. For three years, you're going to work for the king. I wonder if after a while he got tired of that and thought, why am I doing this? Why am I taking people away from their livelihood just to build Solomon another building? But here's what happens. Verse 29 of chapter 11. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah took, gold, took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And I will take you. And you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So there's a couple of things I want you to note in there. First of all, uh, we see a new role for the prophets. There have been prophets before, and they've either been leaders of the people, like Moses, like Deborah, like Samuel, or they've been the men who advised the king from behind the scenes, like Nathan or Gad. But now Ahijah is someone who speaks bypassing the king. And this is going to be the role of the prophets from this point on in the Old Testament. Occasionally, you'll see Isaiah and Hezekiah working together. But for the most part, the prophets will be people who are out there among the people saying, don't listen to what the king says. The king's not listening to God. Let me tell you what God said. You, know, you have a king up on his throne with all his power and authority and his glory. And then you've got this raggedy guy in, in, in goat skin. And he's out there saying, no, 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 thus saith the Lord. It's a tough job. But you're going to see Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, they're going to fulfill this role. Amos, Hosea. Another thing I want you to see is the promise that God makes to Jeroboam. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a, uh, an advance in society to go from being an employee of Solomon to being a king. And yet, it's sort of like what God did for David. And he makes the same promise to David that he made to Jeroboam that he made to David. He said, if you'll be faithful to me, I'll build you a sure house. Your, your dynasty will never end. And next week, we'll see if he actually cashes in on that promise. Um, but the third thing I want you to see is God raises up Jeroboam to afflict the offspring of David. In other words, you are my goad. You are my whip. I'm using you to punish uh, the sons of David in hopes that they will repent and turn back to me. Again, we'll see next week.
if it works. So back to our application points and then we'll wrap up. Number one, I said, character is just as important in a leader as skill. Solomon was in every way a skillful leader. He was wise, he was successful, the nation boomed in every way. If Israel had been a democracy, he would have won every election till the day he died. Because you never vote out the guy who's brought in unprecedented prosperity. But his character flaw undid, did more harm than the good he did. And if you doubt me on that, think about this. How long did Solomon's prosperity last? Not even a generation. How long did his sin haunt Israel until they were destroyed? So his character flaw more than, over, uh, more than overwhelmed the good that he did for the nation. The good didn't last. The sin did. Keep that in mind. Um, in church, in government, wherever, even in your family, be wary of the attitude that says, well, things are going well generally, so there's no reason to make waves. When there are flaws in the character of the leader, they have to be approached. They have to be confronted. Now, as, as a spiritual leader, I would hope you would do it graciously, but I would hope you would do it. I hope you would do it. Number two, the people, I think it's safe to say, winked at Solomon's sin. So in his lifetime, it didn't seem to cost him anything. No one, no one got mad at Solomon for having a thousand wives, for marrying women outside of Israel. But in the end, it cost him everything. We always, when we read stories like this, remember, these are cautionary tales. We need to ask ourselves, what am I getting away with right now? What, is, what sin is there that I'm just, I'm not dealing with it because it's not costing me anything. Just understand, someday it'll cost you everything if you don't handle it, if you don't take it to the Lord, if you don't uh, get right with Him. And listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I don't know who I'm talking to here, but He does. This is not a sermon for your neighbor. This is for you, okay? And number three, there's the good news. Just as the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, it kind of prefigures another story about visitors from the East coming to see a different king. And the Magi, the wise men coming to see Jesus. And it just highlights the fact that Jesus was everything Solomon should have been. And Jesus didn't have the advantages of Solomon. He didn't have the, the wealth. He didn't have the throne. He didn't have the wives. He didn't have the glory. But the result of his life was our salvation. He gave up all that stuff. So pursue the way of Jesus, not the way of Solomon. Solomon gained, Jesus gave. Be like Jesus, not like Solomon. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord, we're so grateful that your word is honest and true, and we pray that we would hear its truth and, impart it and, and take it into our hearts and be honest with ourselves about areas of life where we are getting away with things. Uh, help us to confront that sin. We, we need your Holy Spirit to bring about in us true repentance and humility so that we would get right with you. Lord, I pray that uh, as we see these kinds of things in the lives of others, give us wisdom to know how to confront in grace and humility, always in love. I pray that we would love one another enough to confront when we can. Lord, we pray uh, that your will would be done in our church and in our nation. We pray for renewal and revival for we need it. 
And we thank you, Jesus, for being the, the one we can always count on to do what's right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.